Objects, Data, and Existences, A Reply to Professor McGilvery, by John Dewey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Objects, Data, and Existences, A Reply to Professor McGilvery, by John Dewey. I cannot be otherwise than grateful to Professor McGilvery for the pains he has taken in acquainting himself with my logical analysis and in setting forth his results so clearly and succinctly. Footnote. In his article entitled The Chicago Idea and Idealism, in this journal, volume 5, page 589, end footnote. Gratitude, if nothing else, would lead me to respond to his friendly challenge. Section 1. I begin by quoting almost in toto one section of his criticism, having inserted letters for convenience of subsequent reference to portions involved in the discussion. There is one further difficulty that I wish to lay before Professor Dewey in connection with his new distinction between fact and idea. A. I suppose that most of us accept the other side of the moon as a fact, on a par as fact with this side of it. B. This fact, while as accepted fact, it is on a parity with this side of the moon, yet as experienced fact seems to differ considerably from it. I can see the one. I cannot see the other. There is, after the conclusion is reached that the moon has two hemispheres, a considerable difference in our experience between the two hemispheres, and this difference does not seem to budge however we may pry upon it with changed meanings of terms. The realist, following the ordinary usage, says that while there are two lunar hemispheres, only one can be immediately experienced, and the other is accessible to us only by means of idea. What is pragmatism going to do with this difference? If it ignores it, can it keep peace with science? C. Science makes a thoroughgoing distinction between observation and inference, between empirical facts and scientific constructions upon the basis of facts. What we take to be a satellite, 240,000 miles distant from the planetary Earth, may after all not prove to be what we think it is. But suppose that such a change in scientific construction should ever take place. D. All is not lost from present scientific fact. There remains the fact that there is a bright something, occasionally in experience, growing from slender crescent to full orb. This fact may come to be interpreted as anything you please and get accepted as that thing but it will be there to be accepted somehow whenever anyone constituted like us opens his eyes and turns them in the right direction at an opportune time. This kind of fact, and there are many of them, forms the inexpungible datum of thought. It is the givenest of givens, datissimum datorum. These data of the first order are in the game, but not of it. They give to one lunar hemisphere a primacy which no terrestrial thought reorganization can give to the other. Now a philosophy which keeps close to experience cannot well ignore this distinction between the two kinds of data. Contradictions confront one in the subject matter of this passage. The natural inference is that they have their source in my position. Is this the case, or do they inhere in the ground taken by my critic? Let me first state the gravamen of the charge brought against me, as briefly and as impartially as may be. I have held that objects accepted at the conclusion of a judgment, the lunar sphere, for instance, issue from a process of judging in which data, brute observational facts, and hypothetical meanings, conceptual ideata, are at once discriminated from and referred to each other, 
and that they issue in such fashion that the finally accepted object presents both a reorganization of the data through the idea and a verification of the idea through the experimental processes by which a meaning is taken up into the data. Mr. McGilvery holds that this lands me in subjective idealism, for it admits no facts or objects except those into whose constitution ideas have entered. It also puts me in conflict with scientific method, for it ignores data of the first order, which remain the same yesterday, today, and forever, so far as any thought reconstruction is concerned. Footnote. Mr. Nunn, in his suggestive aims and achievements of the scientific method, has also criticized the view of hypothesis and its functions set forth in the contributions to logical theory on substantially the same ground. See sections 67 and 68. End footnote. Section 2. My reply, in substance, is 1. That I have not ignored the existence of datissima datorum, that the assertion of their existence antecedent to ideas as such is essential to my theory of the reconstructive nature and work of the reflective process. 2. That my critic confuses such data, wholly non-cognitional, non-logical in character, with data which are in and of judgment, and hence distinctively logical in quality. 3. That he puts himself in conflict with science in ascribing to data of the second kind a higher knowledge value than belongs to the objects which are accepted as the conclusions of judgment. The following discussion, while involving the above propositions, will follow, however, a different order. I shall try to show that in the portions of the citation marked off by the letters B, C, and D, he has repeatedly transferred what holds good in one sort of situation to another sort of situation, and that the difficulties he notes flow not from my position, but from this interchange of propositions, each sound in itself, but so distinctive in meaning and reference as to negate the possibility of such transfer. 1. The lunar sphere. It is suggestive, as we shall see below, that my critic sticks closely to two hemispheres, rather than to one sphere, is related, as stated in B, to the individual's act of recognizing it in a twofold way. Just because the assertion in A is true, viz. that the two hemispheres stand as accepted facts on a parity, the individual in apprehending the single total fact cannot be related to the far and to the near sides in the same way. The statement about the difference in the modes of experiencing the two sides is thus congruous with the acceptance of the object in which a judgment is concluded, and it is congruous only with its acceptance. An analysis of the way a fact is apprehended cannot, by the nature of the case, be made to yield a statement of the nature of that fact which is incompatible with the nature whose method of apprehension is under analysis. I come in the sequel to the question of why I deny I am an idealist, but the gist of the matter lies right here. All idealist epistemologies with which I am acquainted perform exactly the self-contradictory act indicated in the last sentence. There are two alternative ways of interpreting the statement of my critic, that as an experienced fact, the other side of the moon differs from this side, even though it be on a parity as an accepted fact. In one way of interpretation, the fact that only one side can be immediately experienced and the other is accessible to us only by means of idea, refers precisely to the ways in which the different related elements in one complex fact are accessible to us, 
the proposition has as its universe of discourse not the relative cognitional status or respective knowledge values of this side and the other side of the moon, but the mode of our access to elements possessed of the same cognitional value. The other mode of interpretation concludes that because our mode of access is different, therefore the elements to which we have access stand on a different footing. Footnote. The implication in the quoted passage that the fact as immediately experienced occupies a position cognitionally superior to the fact accepted after judgment is somewhat startling in view of Mr. McGilvery's previous criticisms of me on the basis of attributing this notion to me, but of this more anon. End footnote. 2. Let us consider both of these alternatives in relation to Mr. McGilvery's argument. If we take the first, which seems to me perfectly sound, we may discriminate, with respect to the lunar sphere, different relations of the two sides to our manner of apprehension. And from the standpoint of the relation of the moon to our cognizing organism, distinguish the sensory quail of this side from the ideal or suggested quail of the other side. We may even, if we wish to, but I wish nobody wished to, speak of the former qualities as, in this relation, sensations, the latter as ideas, but of course, if we so name them, the facts control the meaning of the names, not the names the character of the facts. Sensations mean what Professor McGilvery, in an earlier article, well termed sensa, i.e. qualities of an object in relation to our modes of apprehension. Footnote. This journal, volume 4, page 457, end footnote, it is a disappointment that Mr. McGilvery has not borne in mind, in this article, what he so clearly pointed out before, viz. that the term sensation is an omnibus term, page 458. If he had done so, he would have realized that in pointing out a fifth passenger in an obscure corner of the coach in which Mr. McGilvery had already discovered four fellow travelers, I was neither altering the ordinary acceptation of the term, which of the four is the ordinary, I wonder, nor yet denying the existence of the facts to which any one of the other four refers. But in any case, if Mr. McGilvery intended or accepts this alternative interpretation, no inconsistency lies at my door. It is true as an accepted fact of astronomy that the two sides of the moon are on a parity, and it is true as an accepted fact of psychology, or whatever the universe of reference may be, that given this astronomical fact, the experience of apprehending it is related to its two sides in different fashions. If the other interpretation is accepted, then and then only does this side have a certain priority and supremacy over the other side. And only then can Professor McGilvery charge me with ignoring the plain procedure of science. But if he intends and accepts this second alternative, then he uses his analysis of our recognizing experience to discredit scientific knowledge the conclusion that the two sides stand as hemispheres on a parity. In this case, it turns out to be he, not I, who should be worried about keeping peace with science. For I do not think he will persuade the astronomer to accept a moon which is fact on this side and idea on the other. Green cheese possibly, but idea never. 3. In the portion designated C, a further confusion comes to view. The difference between the two modes of cognitive access to one fact appears now to be confused with a distinction lying within the process of judging or coming to know, viz. that between observation and inference, empirical facts, and scientific instructions upon them. Again, two alternatives are possible. 
Either it is meant that this distinction, with superiority resting on the side of observation and empirical facts, holds during the process of judging the real form of the moon, while, that is, we are still in search of an acceptable fact, or it is meant that this quality of values persists after the conclusion is reached, even after the problem of its form is solved. If he means the former, he has no quarrel with me. For it is precisely this antithetical relation of datum and ideatum which I have made the peculiar differentia of judgment in process, as distinct from in conclusion. But if he means the latter, how shall he keep peace with science? For the characteristic of scientific knowledge is that it finds its genuinely acceptable object in the conclusions of a systematic process of inferential inquiry rather than in observations isolated from all inferential matter or in empirical facts set over against rationally organized and explained facts. When doubt as to the objective character occurs or recurs, then of course the antithesis recurs, and then the datum becomes the factual element and the ideatum the hypothetical element. But as long as the conclusion remains unchallenged, so long the object is as the conclusion describes it. Moreover, when there is doubt, and hence when judgment is going on, not concluded, the factual superiority is only of the datum in that judgment over its hypothetically suggested interpretation, not over the accepted facts of scientific conclusions as such. For the entire process of re-coordinating the raw data rests upon the acceptance of a whole system of other facts, not questioned simultaneously, which are conclusions of other judgments in which thought has intervened. Or, in the passage marked D, the issue shifts to what seems to be a more tenable position. Up to this point, my critic has assumed the hemispherical quality of this side of the moon to be a given empirical fact from which the hemisphericity of the other side is an inference. If we had any direct knowledge that this side of the moon is a hemisphere, the conclusion that the other side is a hemisphere might adorn an exposition of Kant's analytic judgments or enliven a treatise on immediate inference, but it would not illuminate the history of astronomy. Of course, the inference is that the moon is a sphere, the hemisphere character of both sides being involved in this conclusion. This obvious fact is indicated in Mr. McGilvery's reference to the bright something occasionally in experience growing from slender crescent to full orb as the primary datum. The substitution of this statement for the hemispherical character of this side only strengthens, however, it may be truly replied, Mr. McGilvery's argument, for here at last are indeed datissima datorum. But how does this bear down on me? I have insisted, much to my discredit among objective idealists, that there are non-logical antecedents for every specific reflective situation, and that all reflective situations are specific, so that knowledge involving thought is occasioned by non-reflective or alogical, practical factors in an antecedent experience. Footnote. I may remark in passing that some of the criticisms made against this position from the side of the objective idealists would not have been made if it had been seen that my position does not demand that the prior situation as prior should be non-reflective per se, but only as calling out thought, that it does this in virtue of a clash or conflict which itself is wholly non-reflective, no matter how reflective the situation in which it is found. End footnote. I ask for no better proof of the hold of intellectualistic epistemology upon current thought than is afforded by the fact that the position that thought operates in all judging processes, and hence is embodied in all judgment conclusions, 
as seem to so many critics to involve an idealistic theory of the nature of existence. Footnote. Professor McGilvery incidentally questions the use of the term rationalism in my later writings. I do not recall how extensive that use is, but I plead guilty. Rationalism is too closely associated with free thought or free criticism on one hand, and with the antithesis to empiricism on the other, to be conveniently used as a term to designate intellectualism as against pragmatism. For pragmatism may be rationalistic in the first sense, while empiricism may be, sensational empiricism has been, as intellectualistic as any rationalistic theory. End footnote. It would, if to exist and to be subject matter or result of cognition were equivalent terms, but the very denial of intellectualism claims that to exist, to exist even as matter of experience, is not to be identified with the status of a cognized something, whether during judgment or as its conclusion. And this mode of existence furnishes me, as well as Professor McGilvery, an impregnable fortress, a givenness of givens. If to believe in it makes him a realist, then it also makes me one. If there be a difference between us, it must be in the character assigned the prior factor. What is the nature of what happens whenever one constituted like us opens his eyes and turns them in the right direction? Italics mine. So that a crescent or an orb is seen. I say that what happens has the nature of an act, that it exists as an act. I have said that while the act may be cognitive, that is, exercise and influence upon further knowledge, it is not itself properly called cognition. Footnote. Aside from the question of fact, a dialectical difficulty should perhaps, to avoid misapprehension, be referred to. It may be said that I am assuming that primary data are here known, or may be known as acts, and hence I have myself reduced them either to data undergoing interpretation, or else to accepted objects of judgment. This objection, so frequently made, shows again the domination of the intellectualistic assumption. My position is that the term experience denotes primarily a mode of existence. Experience may exist as an act of a certain specific quality, and that does not have to be reduplicated as knowledge in order to possess the character which it has. As for the other objection frequently made, that this reference to an act is pure individualism, I only want here to point out that it is in the critic's assumption, not mine, that an act such as seeing is something attached to or possessed by an individual. As I see it, the individual is within, not without, the act, and within it as only one of its factors. End footnote. What does Professor McGilvery say? If he says that it is a mode or content or object of knowledge, qua knowledge, what relation does its content bear to the datum in judgment? Is it identical with the former? Are the heavens and the furniture of the earth which we see when we open our eyes and turn our heads the same thing as those isolated, selective data of observation which the astronomer accepts as given, and works upon in figuring out the shape of the moon? Then is the rational or objective idealist lying in wait to swallow up Professor McGilvery by his simple method of pointing out the merely particular, merely observational, i.e. sensible, merely fragmentary, chaotic, lawless character of such data, and the necessity of conceptual or thought relations to organize such brute trivialities into our significant world of related objects. Or, on the other hand, does Professor McGilvery mean that looking and seeing things is knowledge par excellence, that it represents the cognitional function at its best? Then how does he keep peace with science? How does he avoid the conclusion that scientific knowledge is a hoax, 
an intentional arbitrary perversion of or declension from what we already know in a better, truer way. But, on the other hand, if it be admitted that what occurs when one, constituted as we are, uses his organs in accordance with their own structure is not knowledge at all, in any intellectual or scientific sense of that term, we are free to admit the primary existence of something with respect to any and all thinking, and at the same time free to admit that when the standpoint of knowledge as knowledge is once taken, the conclusions of systematized inference have a status superior to any other determinations. This, I hope, at least answers the question of Professor McGilvery as to what I mean when I say I do not conceive my position to be idealistic. I do not think it requires thought to see and to hear any more than it does to digest. Though I also think that after thought has intervened, such an action may be performed better, more economically and effectively, and also more chaotically and wastefully, to say nothing of its results, having an infinitely more precious value. Section 3. Professor McGilvery inquires whether I am not, in any case, an idealist in the current sense of idealism, a sense which he states as follows, the theory which regards all reality as embraced within experiences or within experience. He adds a clear, unambiguous answer by Professor Dewey to the question whether he is an idealist in the current sense as defined above would, I am sure, make his view much more intelligible. Ah, my dear questioner, I am tempted to reply there are certain prerequisite conditions for a clear and unambiguous answer, namely that the question be clear and unambiguous. What is meant by embraced? Is it to have an existential meaning? That some thing called experience holds physically or metaphysically other things in its embrace? Then I do not accept the theory. Or is its meaning methodological, that philosophy, like science, proceeds intelligibly and fruitfully to verifiable results only by taking experienced, not transcendental things, and by discussing them in the characters they empirically possess, not in the characters which, according to some a priori method, they ought to possess? In that case, my answer might be affirmative, coupled with the admission that I know shamefully little about all reality, since my empiricism is precisely that the only realities I do know anything about, or ever shall know anything about, are just experienced realities. For I do not suppose the phrase all reality was a trap laid for me. Again, would not a clear and unambiguous definition of experience be both a boon in general and a prerequisite to a clear and unambiguous answer to the question asked? In neither of the two senses of experience, which Mr. McGilvery expressly sets forth on page 595, can I answer the question affirmatively. In the sense in which he uses the term on his next page, in the passage quoted, but without defining it, my answer would probably be affirmative. But in that case I am confused, for Professor McGilvery says that view is realism, and a reply that made me out both realist and idealist at the same time might not strike anybody as clear and unambiguous. But perhaps if Mr. McGilvery should make explicit the sense in which he uses the word experienced when he talks, for example, about our experience of the moon as changing from crescent to full orb, and should contrast that with his use of experience in the instance of the perceived stone, he would discover a vital and pregnant meaning of experience which would reveal that he and I, as human beings, are much alike in what we mean by experience. And in that case, I am quite willing to leave it to my critic by what names he and I are to be labeled. End of Objects, Data, and Existences, A Reply to Professor McGilvery by John Dewey